Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 179, Darkest Before the Dawn. As March 1942 came to a close, the U.S. Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier Command concluded that its frontier was the most dangerous area for merchant shipping in the entire world. True enough, and the second half of March saw the sinking of 31 ships and the death of almost 700 people during that time. And the man responsible for preventing this sorry state of affairs was Admiral Adolphus Andrews, commander of the U.S. Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier. Yet, truth be told, Admiral Andrews was suffering along with everyone else, in that the United States was still gearing up for the war. For a few weeks in late February, Andrews had the sum total of one destroyer on full-time anti-submarine patrol off the East Coast. And that ship was the World War I-era Wicks-class flush deck destroyer USS Jacob Jones, DD-130. So it will come as little surprise that the Jacob Jones, outmanned as she was, was sunk on February 28th. 1942. Commissioned in late 1919, the Jacob Jones participated in FDR's good neighbor visit to Haiti in the mid-1930s. The idea was to increase trade and trust between the U.S. and its Latin neighbors, though few of the latter were convinced of America's sincerity, given some of its heavy-handedness earlier in the century. Yet the tour was also a warning to Europe to stay away from Latin America. In 1936, the Jacob Jones, with many other U.S. ships, went to Spain to evacuate American citizens as the Spanish Civil War exploded onto the scene. By early 1941, the Jones was in dry dock for serious refitting, while the crew underwent training for anti-submarine warfare. After some convoy duty, she was patrolling the East Coast in late February 1942. On that day, an enemy sub was detected, to which the Jones dropped 57 depth charges. Oil slicks soon appeared, but no other debris was spotted. The Jones left the area, hoping there was one less German submarine around. Later that month, on February 27th, the Jacob Jones left New York Harbor to patrol along the New Jersey coast. At 3.30 p.m., she came upon the wreckage of the tanker R.P. Rezor, which had been torpedoed the previous day. Searching for survivors for the next two hours, but finding none, the Jones turned south to resume patrol duties. That afternoon and night, she was on radio silence, and all her lights were darkened. Then, however it happened, U-boat 578 was able to approach the Jones undetected at dawn. Not wasting any time, the sub launched a three-torpedo spread. Their approach was unnoticed as well. Two of the three torpedoes then struck the destroyer. The first torpedo made contact just behind the bridge, which caused serious damage, mostly because the vessel's magazine was then ignited. This caused the complete destruction of the bridge, the chart room, and the officers' quarters. Right away, the ship lost power, and so came to a stop. 
The second torpedo struck near the aft part of the ship. Here, too, a section of the vessel became separated. About 113 men were on board at this moment, but the two torpedoes, with the magazine exploding, killed the majority of the crew. Now, about 25 men were left alive. However, as the tough old ship took 45 minutes to go under, the survivors were able to launch at least four lifeboats. But then, as the ship went under bow first, her depth charges started going off, which killed several survivors on a nearby raft. The same thing had happened to an earlier version of the Jacob Jones in 1917. Just after 8 a.m., an inshore patrol boat picked up 12 survivors, yet one of those died on the way back to land. The headline reporting this event on page 2, and only taking up 4 inches, read, Closer and Closer, U.S. Destroyer Sunk Off New Jersey, 100 Lost, Only 11 Saved Out of Some 145 in Crew. The Associated Press added, much to the Navy's chagrin, the Jacob Jones was the first U.S. warship ever torpedoed and sunk by an enemy submarine in home waters. And yes, as tragic as it was for those 100 or so families now without that member, the East Coast had just lost its only full-time sub-hunter. To be sure, Admiral Andrews was acutely aware of his shortages and made this clear to Admiral Ernest J. King, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Fleet. But each time, King made Andrews aware of the shortage of destroyers. What there were, mostly, was assigned to convoy duty in the North Atlantic. As stated previously, 30-something ships were lost off the East Coast during the latter half of March. In all of the world, 79 Allied vessels were lost that month. But clearly, the most problematic area was the waters between New York and Florida. However, only 6% of those sinkings during March were along the convoy routes in the North Atlantic. The majority were being sunk before the ship reached a convoy. And Admiral Andrews had just 5% of the destroyers of the U.S. Navy, the traditional enemy of the submarine. Now, Admiral King was not insensitive to Andrew's dilemma, but each time Andrew sent a message up the chain of command, and these were many, King's response was, you'll have them when I have them. But for now, King would issue a command that any destroyer en route to a new assignment or being sent in for repairs was to spend at least a few days first hunting off the East Coast. It was better than nothing but not much. In total, the USS Herbert spent 18 days in March on patrol. The Dickerson and Jess Roper each put in eight days. As for the rest, like the USS Dahlgren, Cole, and DuPont, they each put in a few days. Of course, altogether, they were trying to cover some 400,000 square miles of ocean. Which meant that the limited destroyers off the East Coast were in reaction mode. A vessel would be torpedoed, the destroyer would come along, hoping to find survivors. But as of yet, no U.S. military vessel had seen or actively detected 
a German sub. Ironically, or not, considering how often the lessons of history are lost, in 1917, then-President Woodrow Wilson gave a speech that eerily matched the needs of FDR in 1942. Quote, Someone has to think out the way to not only find the submarine, but to do something different from what we are doing. We are hunting hornets all over the farm and letting the nest alone. None of us know how to get to the nest and crush it, and yet I despair of hunting for hornets all over the sea. Unquote. Alas, for Admiral Andrews and the U.S. Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier Command, it was about to get worse. On March 18th, the cargo ship SS Liberator, captained by Albin Johnson, was approaching Cape Lookout, about 60 miles southwest of Hatteras Island, heading north. As such, the crew was nervous and stressed, for these men had recently seen the results of the attacks on the tankers Papoose and W.E. Hutton, and in front of the Liberator was Cape Hatteras and the Diamond Shoals, currently, again, the most dangerous place on the planet for a merchant vessel. Still, per the captain, the crew was vigilant, as were the four U.S. Navy Armed Guard personnel standing by their four-inch guns. Suddenly, coxswain Frank Camillo, through his spyglass, spotted a long, large, dark object turning in their direction. The order to fire was given, and fortunately, the Navy Armed Guard, having practiced heavily, struck the target. Unfortunately, the target was the destroyer USS Dickerson, who was trying to identify the Liberator. Several men on board the destroyer were killed, and the skipper, Lieutenant Commander J.K. Raybold, was seriously injured. The next-in-command ordered the destroyer to rush to a medical facility in Norfolk, Virginia, yet it would be too late. The commander would die while still ten minutes out from shore. Yet for all this, the tragedy of the friendly fire, the vigilance of the crew of the Liberator, the cargo ship still became a victim of the Germans the next day at 10 a.m., just south of Diamond Shoals, itself just south of Hatteras Island. The ship was cleanly hit, went down quickly, but fortunately, 31 men survived. Alas, five men of the engine crew, where the torpedo struck, were killed instantly. And just like that, Admiral Andrews was down another destroyer for the USS Dickerson would not be operational until April. Now, Admiral Andrews, Admiral King, held the entire U.S. Navy, knew what the solution was to this U-boat menace. First, the subs had to be hunted down just as soon as they attacked. Yes, a ship would be lost, but if each sub was killed after attacking, soon the waters would be cleared of the German threat. That's how the tide of war would be turned. Further, to get ahead of this threat, one day in the future it would be nice to have enough destroyers to station themselves off the coast of France to sink the enemy before they got anywhere near the east coast. Yet both solutions, the aggressive hunting and later the actual proactive stopping of said threat, required large numbers of naval ships, and that was still in America's future, 
Even Admiral Donitz knew this. He, like the Americans, was biding his time, except that, for the moment, he was enjoying his victories. Also, when word of the reduced protection hit the various merchant marine crews, their panic rose as well. Still, the Navy was doing the best it could with what it had. And the men on the destroyers, like the World War I-era USS Chess Roper, were willing to do their part, but readily acknowledged the limitations of their ancient vessel, like it rolled relatively easier than the newer ships. It had a sad turning radius and would need to be refueled more often than the newer destroyers. However, the old girls were fast and heavily armed, what with six 21-inch torpedoes, depth charges, six 3-inch 50-caliber guns, and four 50-caliber machine guns. Hence, they were feared by the enemy subs. But again, no American sub had even laid eyes on the U-boats thus far. Yet every machine of war manned by a person has an Achilles heel, and that's the person operating it. When word got back to the Jess Roper of the sinking of the Jacob Jones, morale slipped dangerously low. For transferring crew back and forth between the older destroyers was commonplace. Hence, each sinking left a strong sense of loss among the other ships. Oh, the anger and desire for revenge would rise soon enough. But that late March, the men of the Jess Roper felt alone abandoned, and unable to cope with the losses happening on their watch. And each oil slick they came upon, or the remains of some shot-up lifeboat, just reminded the men all over again of their failures. Thus the men of the Jess Roper missed their comrades, and felt as if they were letting the world down. On March 29th, when at 10.20 a.m., the sonar operator heard the transmitter give a ping-ping in his ears. His eyes widened, as for the last few hours, the ping would go out, but no responding ping would return. Just ping, ping, ping. But now, being 23 miles due east of Little Kennekeet, about 10 miles above Hatteras Island, a bounced ping was coming back. The destroyer slowed so its own sound would not make the sonar operator's job any harder. But when the operator got a strong signal, the ship's speed was increased from 15 knots to 20. The chase was on. The ship had already been made watertight with the order set at material condition affirm. This made sure that the bulkheads were tight, hatches battened, ventilators shut down, and the pre-assigned guns were ready to fire. Now the Claxton opened up, Auga, Auga, for general quarters. With the men in place and the right speed for attack was achieved, she began to zigzag while depth charges were dropped. Twenty minutes later, the return ping was gone. Not that this meant the attack had been a success, for no telltale signs could be seen, like the debris of a sub floating to the surface. At noon, conditions were set back to normal. That same afternoon, contact was made with something and more depth charges were released, but again, no sign of a hit. 
Some of the crew wondered if they were seeing, or in this case, hearing things that weren't really there, but better safe than sorry. Going back to the moment that the destroyer Jess Roper first made contact with something below the water, U-Boat 123 was about 75 miles due east of its location. Captain Hatteras was on his way to the Cape Hatteras's lighthouse, which he called his old friend. And just 24 hours later, in between the patrolling Jess Roper and the approaching U-123 of Captain Hardigan, on that Palm Sunday, going back to the very first episode of this series, U-160 heard the accidental distress call that the panicked crew of the passenger ship the city of New York, sent out. A little later, U-160 sank the city of New York, of which two of the survivors were the mother, Desanka Mahorovich-Kitsch, and her about-to-be-born child, while in a lifeboat. Once again, the Jess Roper was about 25 miles away from the doomed city of New York. Once again, the crew had let someone down. In the afternoon of the following day, the Roper was still looking for the sub that destroyed the city of New York, and soon it came upon debris. Of course, this did not have to be from the sunken vessel, as there had been several sinkings around this time. The search continued, but not until that night did the first real clue make itself known. After the sun went down, from a rather calm day weather-wise, A red flare was spotted off the Roper's starboard bow. The ship was turned in that direction. But 23-year-old ensign Kenneth M. Tabo, the officer of the deck, realized this could be a trick of the Germans. But enough lives had already been lost. The Roper was going in. Getting to the area of the red flare, soon a light was spotted, about eight miles away. Tabo had the speed cut as they approached, where, hopefully, survivors of the city of New York would be found. By now, it was getting near midnight. Soon, the 314-foot-long destroyer was next to a much smaller lifeboat. The crew brought the survivors on board as fast as they could, so to clear the area, just in case the Germans were about. The bringing aboard of the survivors had started at 12.47 a.m., and it was a long 17-minute interval, making the crew most anxious, as the 27 people, crew, and civilians were exhausted and had a hard time getting up the cargo nets that had been thrown over the side of the destroyer. Finally, all were aboard, and it was time to continue the search for other survivors. Thus, when the sonar operator sent out a ping, he was praying reverently that there would be no return ping. To go to battle now was to certainly doom any other survivors out there. The Roper set out again, looking for any indication of more people. And finally, at 2.40 a.m., another flare was seen lifting from the sea. This life raft had nine people who were soon being brought on board. But just then, the sonar operator yelled out that he had made a contact, bearing 45 degrees. The last of the rescued was fairly thrown over the edge of the ship, which then sped off towards the contact. 
At 3.10 a.m., a single depth charge was released, but again, no telltale sign of success rose from the waters. Then, a third flare was seen, which led to another raft. Here, 12 crewmen of the city of New York were saved, but the destroyer's crew could not help but think, if we were sinking subs, this type of rescue would not be needed. Still, it was the job before them. Though the sun had yet to rise, it was now about 4 a.m. of that Tuesday. Thus far, 48 survivors had been found, but that meant another 97 were still out there. Hopefully, still out there. And not on board the roper was the baby, who was now 26 hours old. What the destroyer's crew could not know was that that lifeboat was about 15 miles to the northwest, and each minute that went by, it was being pushed further away. Meanwhile, Dr. Leonard Conley, who had delivered the child in pitch black with 15-foot seas while ignoring his own two broken ribs, was watching, as happily as he could, that nature had finally taken over and the baby was resting on its mom's chest. To the best of his ability, Charles Van Gordon, in charge of the lifeboat, had the others take turns paddling to get them out of the Gulf Stream. Hence, they were nudging their way west. While this was going on, others were asked to bail out water, which was freezing the occupants. Helping out, there were gusts of wind, to which Gordon would quickly react by putting up the sail. However, the wind pushed them east. It was impossible to fight. Each hour had them closer to the limit of which the Coast Guard and Navy would search for them. Next came a storm which put Gordon in a quandary. The winds made him want to take the sail down, but in order to do that, the mast would have to come down. And in that process, in the storm, someone might get hurt. An intolerable situation. Finally, at 4.28 a.m., a flare was seen by the crew of the Roper, who had gone more easterly to search out any other survivors. Now the officer of the deck was a lieutenant junior grade M.M. M. Sanford. He wasted no time in ordering the destroyer in the direction of the flare. The Germans be damned. It was then the lifeboat with 21 survivors was found, plus one more who had only recently joined the passenger list. But something was wrong. The destroyer wasn't coming alongside the lifeboat. Sure, the winds were strong and the waves were high, but Gordon wasn't about to wait until morning, as he suspected that was the current thinking of the roper. Ordering his men to row, they positioned the lifeboat on the leeward side of the destroyer, where the wind and waves were weaker. As usual, the netting was thrown over the side and the crew hollered down for the survivors to jump onto the netting to climb up, which was fine for the crew, but not for the elderly and shaking Mrs. Dahlberg, who had just escaped from Nazi Germany. So a stretcher was lowered down to the boat, but in their haste, the men around helping her did not strap her to the stretcher. Thus, as it was lifted, she almost slid off and landed right in between the two vessels, which would have crushed her to death. But she was caught at the last second, fastened tight, and only then lifted up 
the rest of the way. That's when the Roper's crewmen, who were helping the survivors climb up, heard a yell from below, "'Send the baby up next!' "'What baby? There was no talk of a baby. Perhaps they heard this wrong.' As for the mother, however, her instincts were kicking in to not hand over her son, who was only a day old. And this lifeboat had been his entire universe. Now they wanted her to let go of the boy, to pass him up the netting. Mom was not overly keen on this, but she must have realized the alternative. Mrs. Homorovichik let go and watched as her son seemed to fly up the netting as he was passed from hand to hand. At the top was a young sailor, fortunately with strong hands, who, it must be said, did not know what he was about to be handed. Still, when the eight-pound package made it to him, he gripped tight and then ran to the sickbay. With this drama over, the rest of the survivors were hauled up, with Charles Van Gordon being the last, as was proper. At 5.26 a.m., the roper got underway again, as 75 more people were still missing. At 6 a.m., another flare was spotted, but when that location was reached, all that waited for the destroyer was an empty lifeboat. Aboard the destroyer, the women were given the officers' quarters, not that the word plush could be used to describe the accommodations. Now, before the series of rescues, the crew of the Jess Roper, indeed it had already set in at an earlier date, would stay emotionally far away from the civilians. To help them was one thing, but as much death and destruction as the crew had seen, it was best to stay bottled up. Simply pick them up, be ready to take on the Germans, deliver the survivors, and then do it all over again. But it was the sheer volume of death and lost ships that got the men down. Not today, with the women on board looking grateful, looking at the crewmen like they were heroes. The men in uniform could not help but smile back. And then there was the baby. Many of the crew found an excuse, or an opportunity, to check in on mom and babe, if only to say, and the mom heard this dozens of times, that the little man was now a boatswain's mate. He was one of the crew. A few days later, mom would tell the reporters on land that she had decided to call him Jess Roper Morhorovich. Finally, the Navy, the Merchant Marine, and the country had something to cheer about. But even before the ship had returned to the coast, the crew of the Jess Roper had a whip round and presented the exhausted and overwhelmed mom with $210. By 3 p.m. of that same Tuesday, the Roper decided to give up the search for the rest of the passengers. By 11 p.m., they were back at Pier Number 5 of the Norfolk Naval Operating Base. Waiting for them, besides medical crews, were reporters with their photographers. Little Jess was hailed as the baby born in a lifeboat. And it was this coverage that allowed little Jess's father, Joseph, at the Yugoslav consulate in New York, to learn the story and that his entire family, when so many others had not, survived the trip to the New World. As the USS Jess Roper was picking up some of the survivors from the city of New York, the third lifeboat was found by USS Anschnett, 
a tug that had been pressed into service as an anti-submarine vessel. 37 people were pulled out of the sea, including the ship's captain, George T. Sullivan. Incredibly, 11 days later, a military aircraft found a lifeboat 90 miles east of Cape May, New Jersey, holding 13 people. This was the fourth lifeboat of the city of New York, which somehow had traveled 216 miles from where it had left the sinking mother ship. At that time, 20 people were on board. But as the days went by, with no food or water, some began to perish. Their bodies were respectfully lowered into the sea. By the time the Coast Guard rescued them, seven of those people had died. Postscript. When it came time to fill out baby Jess Roper's birth certificate, the question, where was the child born, was a stumper. Somewhere in the Atlantic? Not that it mattered. The Yugoslavian family was told that since Jess was born on a lifeboat that belonged to a ship with an American registry, plus the first land that he touched was U.S. soil, he was already a U.S. citizen. As for where Jess Roper Mohorovicic was born, best guess, using the Coast Guard's records, is about 50 miles due east of Rodanthe Village, which is about 25 miles north of Hatteras Island. Jess would stay in the newspapers for a while as the lifeboat baby, but the family's Jewish neighbors came up with their own title, the baby Hitler couldn't get. And this started the round of telling the story in the press all over again. Also keeping an eye out for the boy was the president of the Feral Lines that had owned the city of New York and King Peter II of Yugoslavia. Years later, when Jess himself was asked about all this, he honestly said, I remember nothing. He compared himself to being a football in the Rose Bowl. Yes, he was there, but that was about it. Jess Roper Mohorovic, he altered his last name slightly, died in 2005.